I really love singing along to songs. In the car, when it's on the radio, around the house, and apparently in the middle of downtown Silver Spring. That is where I was the other day, singing along, sort of at the top of my lungs, with the band leader. You know how there's a band all the time in downtown Silver Spring right now? I'm not quite sure. It's like a law, a county ordinance, there has to be a band. So there was a band there in downtown, right by the fountain. And I was singing along to the song. And my five-year-old daughter was, I think, a little embarrassed, might be the word, I thought that did not begin until adolescence, but apparently we are precocious in our family. It might have been the volume of my singing, that's possible, or the fact that no one else was really singing out loud at that time. But I think it was also the tone. I was trying to match my voice, you know, the way you do that to the singer, um, sort of having my own little American Idol moment, doing the runs and the breathy kind of thing. And Marcella turned to me, my daughter turned to me and said, Mama, you don't have to make your voice sound like hers. Your voice doesn't sound like that. (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes. How much of my life have I spent trying to sing like someone else? How much of your life have you spent that way? I first started thinking about this topic earlier this year when I was reading Parker Palmer. He's a Quaker educator and writer, and he has a number of books, but the one that I happened to be reading is called Let Your Life Speak, and it's about kind of vocation and, and journeys and about his own journey in life. And there's a passage in there that, that particularly got me thinking about this. <coughs> What a long time, he writes, what a long time it can take to become the person one has always been. How often in the process we mask ourselves in faces that are not our own. How much dissolving and shaking of ego must we, we must endure before we discover our deep identity, the true self within every human being that is the seed of authentic vocation. thinking deeply about how, how that is, what it is to be our true selves that might be the task of a lifetime, discovering who we are, who we truly are, what our own song or our own voice is. There's a practicality piece to that, something that we engage in here at West, not infrequently. I think especially of our coming-of-age program where both our teens and the adults take Myers-Briggs quizzes and learn their type and, and what they are. And about the quizzes and magazines that I always take, you know, I'm sort of addicted to those kinds of quizzes, like what, what's your decorating style, which isn't exactly the same as what's your deepest self, but I think it's <laughs> similar. But the idea of finding your deepest self, it's a theme that goes across religious traditions. I found a quote from Lao Tse, who's the, um, the author of, the, of um, the book of Tao, that sort of Taoist wisdom, who wrote, knowing others is wisdom, knowing yourself is enlightenment. 
Isn't that great? Knowing others is wisdom. Knowing yourself is enlightenment. And there's even a whole concept for kind of knowing your deepest self in Eastern thought. The word for identity in Sanskrit is nam. As the minister Tim Kutzmark writes, nam in its most functional translation means name. It is the label we attach to identify something or someone. But Nam has a much deeper meaning than simply a surface name. Nam penetrates to the core of being. Nam is the essence of something. Kutzmark goes on to explain that all of us have sort of a constant whirling about in our minds, you know, the vagaries of daily existence. We're happy, we're sad, we're excited, we're lonely, all of those things. But he goes on. Beyond that, there is Sat. Sat is a Sanskrit word meaning the absolute, eternal, unchanging being. Sat is the reality at the root of ourselves. Sat is the stillness in the center of our storm. Simply put, Kutzmark writes, Sat is truth. Put Sat and Nam together and you get Sat Nam, which means true identity. True identity. Wouldn't we love to just, you know, get a card or something in the mail? Well, here it is, your true identity. Your nam, your sat nam, your true identity. Knowing self, I think, really understanding who we are ourselves is tied to the idea of accepting self. Hearing the song that is only yours and then deciding to sing it means that you've claimed it in some way, that you like it. That your song, even though it might not be perfect or breathy, it might not be an American Idol song or whatever you thought that song was supposed to be, that it's your song and you own it and claim it and because, just because it's yours, it's perfectly right. There's a bluegrass song that I like. Bluegrass, you know, I think might be part of my satnam, kind of somewhere deep in my blood. There's a bluegrass song I heard on the radio called Ain't Nobody Who Can Sing Like Me. And I loved it. The song wasn't saying that I sing particularly better than anyone else, but that no one can sing my particular song. No one can sing just exactly like me. And there's a sense of pride and power, I think, in finding and claiming our own song, our own voice, being who we are meant to be. For many of us, too, there's a sense of just relief. When we stop trying to be someone else, stop trying to sing the American Idol version of our song, being someone else can be exhausting, and we rarely manage to keep it up for very long anyway. I think sometimes about sort of dramatic experiences with uncovering self, with becoming more fully ourselves, and I think especially of folks who are transgendered or in the genderqueer community. I have a colleague who's a friend on Facebook uh, who recently posted that it was the 16th anniversary for him of the day that he started hormone injections with male hormones. It was a celebration for him of becoming himself, of living with integrity, living fully his own story and his own voice. Knowing ourselves, realizing who we are can be not just an aha moment, but a kind of ah moment. And even more than that, having others see us for who we are. Having people recognize the satnam inside us, the person that we know ourselves to be.
We all have those people, I think, the friend or the parent or the child who totally sees us. Flaws, marvels, brokenness, humanness. I don't mean the person who just accepts us as we are, although that is wonderful too. I mean the person that really sees us, that gets us. You know, have you experienced that moment when someone looks at you and you realize they are actually seeing you? The you that you feel like inside. In fantasy novels, that moment often leads to major cosmic shifts. They can see that you're actually a vampire, and it's okay with them. And as you claim your true self, the curse that bound you to your evil twin brother is suddenly lifted. It's possible I've gotten a head start on my summer reading in the last week or so. But there's a reason, I think, that this idea is a major theme in fantasy and in science fiction, the true self hidden under layers of curses or blessings or secrets the discovery or the rediscovery of what lies beneath. That true self-knowledge, which is always the key to something important. Often, though, in those novels, the hero has to fight a battle, you know, what I call the battle of the two selves. That within the hero lies, wait for it, you don't find out till chapter 7, both the good twin and the evil twin both the angel and the devil, and a choice must be made within. So how does that fit in with our doctrine of self-acceptance? Do we have a doctrine of self-acceptance? Maybe that's the first question. America as a country, I think, is deeply divided on this issue. There are plenty of self-help books that are about trying to become your full self and own who you are deeply, But they're at least balanced by the number of books that are trying to get you to be something different, something better, something thinner, something whiter. Of course, we at West, we're not America. We're ethical culturists. So what is our doctrine of self, I wonder? It's also divided, but I think, and I'll try to convince you in a wonderful way, maybe not divided so much as held in tension, in balance. Lots of progressive religious traditions talk about welcome, about welcoming all. And that idea of welcome is so important, I think, to who we are. We welcome you just as you are. My colleague Mary pointed this out in a great platform last year about transformation. We welcome you just as you are, and then we ask you to be transformed. And there is that pull, I think, toward transformation in any kind of religious community, certainly in our own. There's another great quote from W.E.B. Du Bois that I found when I was working on this platform. The most important thing to remember is this, to be ready at any moment to give up what you are for what you might become. I don't know, that sounds good too, doesn't it? Maybe self-acceptance is taking the easy way out. Short of having Parker Palmer and W.E.B. Du Bois duke it out in a kind of self-acceptance versus personal growth Quaker-style boxing match, (laughs) what do we do? We turn to what I would call our doctrine of the self, and it's actually right there built into our statement of purpose here at West. and and recited frequently at many ethical societies all across the country, elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. 
bringing out the best, what does that mean for us? Where does it speak to that tension between self-acceptance and change? First of all, I think the concept speaks to uniqueness, to having a particular voice. We talk sometimes about the concept of the ethical manifold, which is really this kind of idea from the founder of ethical culture that we're all connected, that we're all ethical agents. You can imagine it even if you look around the room and you see yourself with a, with a string out to each other person. Each one of us has a string connecting us all to each other, and it's that web that brings us together, that web that creates who we are, not just in this community, but all around the world. But the thing about the web, the thing about the ethical manifold that I love so much is that we're not supposed to be the same, those ethical agents. Each one of us has a particular voice, a unique voice, that best that we bring out in each other. It's different for every one of us. We bring this idea, I think, to our justice work. Sometimes we talk about the golden rule, and then folks will talk about the platinum rule. You know, have you heard that? We talk about it at West sometimes, the platinum rule, that you do unto others not what you would have them do unto you, but what they would like done unto them. What is your best, since it might not be like mine at all, actually, what is your particular voice, your own song? And so that speaks, I think, to the idea of self-acceptance, but then I think the max, that same maxim, elicit the best in others and thereby in ourselves, also calls us to the kind of growth, the becoming, that Du Bois asks us to consider. Because it's not just our own song we're calling out, it's our best own song, the best version of our song. It's definitely not the evil twin inside our vampiric nature, however that works, and you know we all have that inside us too, although usually not quite as dramatically as in the novels I read. Parker Palmer puts it this way as he expands on the idea of self. It's a strange gift, he writes, this birthright gift of self. Accepting it turns out to be even more demanding than attempting to become someone else. I have sometimes responded to that, by de that demand, Parker goes on, by ignoring the gift or hiding it or fleeing from it or squandering it. And I think I'm not alone. There is a Hasidic tale that reveals with amazing brevity both the universal tendency to want to be someone else and the ultimate importance of becoming one's self. Rabbi Zuzia, when he was an old man, said, in the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zuzia? Being Zuzia doesn't mean being someone else, but neither does it mean just being yourself in a kind of lazy way, you know? I don't think that the rabbi meant that the coming world will be satisfied if he said, well, I was kind of a crummy person, but at least I was myself, you know, so points for that. I wonder sometimes if part of what we're articulating is a difference between self-acceptance and self-awareness. The first can veer toward that you're okay, I'm okay kind of stopping of growth for ourselves. The second calls us to understand ourselves fully, deeply, all parts of ourselves, but still allows for us to grow from and with that sense of self, perhaps to find the sat nam of being Zuzia, if I can mixed to totally radically different religious traditions. To get back to the fantasy world, it's always firmer ground than religious traditions here at West. 
back to the fantasy world. I thought that was funny too, thanks. How can we tell which part of us is the evil twin, or more realistically, the stuff that we want to grow out of or grow past, and which part of us is who we are most deeply, the Sat Nam? How can we tell that we're growing into better versions of ourselves and not just versions of someone else? I think for me, it's in relationship, so often the answer to these questions. Remember the friend that I mentioned, you know, the one that you might have that sees you just for exactly who you are, who brings that sense of relief. Ah, yes, they get me. For me, at least, that's also the friend who's mostly, who's most likely to call me on my stuff, to tell me when I need to do some growing and fast. They get who I am, you know, so they wouldn't ask me to grow into something foreign from myself. But they do want me to be that best version of Susia. Parker Palmer, again, has something to say about that deep connection of selfhood to relationship. Contrary to the conventions of our thinly moralistic culture, he writes, this emphasis on gladness and selfhood is not selfish. The Quaker teacher Douglas Steer was fond of saying that the ancient human question, who am I, leads inevitably to the equally important question, whose am I? Whose am I? For there is no selfhood outside of relationship. We must ask the question of selfhood and answer it as honestly as we can, no matter where it takes us. Only as we do so can we discover the community of our lives. End quote. Sometimes in progressive congregations, we say something like, you're welcome just as you are. And then I wonder occasionally if a better tagline might not be the musical title. I love you. You're perfect. Now change. Or maybe, I love you, you're perfect, now grow. And again, I think about the most dramatic, perhaps, versions of becoming more fully ourselves. That same colleague that I mentioned who had posted about the 16th anniversary for him of coming to his true self also posted a picture just the next day of himself as a child, an adorable little girl. I loved especially, was a it was a cute picture. But I loved especially the comments from his friends on that picture, on his Facebook page. Oh, you have the same eyes, they wrote. Oh, you've just the same expression now. I love your little face. I can see the spirit of compassion that you hold now already there in your six-year-old self. They were honoring his satnam, I think, which hadn't changed at all, despite this this change to his outward appearance and his identity that we might say was dramatic, was huge. Even though he had taken a journey of how that selfhood might look that was transformational, the Satnam didn't change at all. And you could tell from the picture of him at six. He was perfect when he was a little girl. We, humanity, collectively, a religious community, did love him just then. And then he had to grow. So maybe the tagline is really, I love you, you're perfect, now grow, I still love you. Can we 
find a way, I wonder, to honor that deep satnam within, the true selfhood, to honor that there's something wonderful about finding our particular voice and at the same time honor the impulse toward growth. I think so. The more I think about life, about religious life or ethical life, the life wisely lived, the more I realize it's almost always about paradox. Two things true at the same time. You're perfect. Now grow. You're whole just as you are, and you can continue to become something new, something that is somehow also old, somehow always you. I think about my daughter and her admonition not to try to sing like her. And you know, I've accepted it now. I'm not actually going to be on American Idol one day. I don't have a Mariah Carey, what is it, like a vibrato? Or I'm not sure what she does all up in that range. But it doesn't mean I shouldn't get some voice coaching either. So that the voice I do have the one that's truly mine sounds just as beautiful as it can. So that I can sing my own song with depth and richness, with fullness to the sound, it's still not going to sound like Mariah Carey. It's not going to even sound like whoever was singing in the band that day in downtown Silver Spring. But then again, as the rabbi reminds us, no one is going to ask how good a Mariah Carey I was. All we are asked to do is sing our own songs the best we know how. <laughs>